Hello, I'm Anna Elliott and this is Blendle Handpicked. If you give me five minutes of your time, I'll give you three stories that stood out above all the rest this week. First up today is a story from The Economist about the inner workings of the EU. Specifically, it's about why Brussels diplomats embrace offensive national stereotypes. Now, you might think that in the melting pot that is the Brussels bubble, there is no place for generalizations. These are people who speak several languages, whose colleagues come from 28 different countries, who travel all over the world. But in fact, the opposite is the case, and this piece reveals the surprising extent of it. These stereotypes can be relatively harmless, but when the politics get tense, they can get pretty nasty. The piece explains that, at the height of the Euro crisis, German politicians such as Angela Merkel were portrayed as Nazis in the Greek press. In turn, Mrs Merkel once claimed that the Greeks should simply take fewer holidays to get out of their economic rut. So all that is surprising enough, but the piece goes on to explain why stereotypes in Brussels, despite their dark side, are actually quite useful. They're a coping mechanism for complexity. When you've got 28 states clamouring to make policy, sometimes you do need broad brushstrokes to understand what's going on. Not only that, they can be used as a tool. Some diplomats might find their unflattering stereotypes can work in their favour and deliver a boost to their careers. Better to be one of the overly organised Germans than a chaotic Italian, or one of the stingy Dutch than a spendthrift Greek. But obviously there's a flip side to that, and stereotypes can be wielded as a weapon. Even senior officials from certain countries feel their ideas aren't taken seriously. There's so much to this smart piece, and in only four minutes it manages to explain a key aspect of how the European Union works. I'd highly recommend checking it out in The Economist. The link is in the show notes. Next, I have an utterly absorbing profile from Arielle Levy in The New Yorker on a 72-year-old Scottish woman who feels no emotional or physical pain. Jo Cameron can feel every emotion and every sensation apart from the ones that hurt us and worsen our mood. For her, childbirth was easy. Her beloved mother's death was a cause for appreciation and pleasure. When a foster child stole all her vacation money from a cookie jar, she just started saving again. The reason I love this story is that it does so many things very well. Levy spends time with Joe Cameron and her family to find out how this bizarre situation has affected their lives. She gets to know Cameron so well that her personality jumps and sparkles on the page, and by the end of the piece, you feel like you know her too. But Levy also dives deep into the science behind her condition. There's a particularly interesting point during a discussion about gene mutations that explains how Cameron's body builds up an excess of chemicals that bind to the same receptors as THC molecules in cannabis, meaning that people with that genetic mutation can come across as though they're high. As Levy says, Joe Cameron is fully baked. Having felt like we've met Cameron earlier in the piece, that certainly rings true. There's also a great discussion in the story about how pain keeps us alive by feeling that things are hot, we don't burn our skin off. And Cameron is lucky to have made it this far. But Levy also opens the story up philosophically. Physical pain keeps us healthy, sure, but we're also told that emotional pain is what makes joy so special. We're told you can't have the highs of life without the lows, and suffering is what makes us human. 
It's an idea that's entrenched in our sense of identity, but it's completely threatened by knowledge of Cameron, someone who has probably led one of the happiest lives of anybody on the planet. And scientists are already prodding and poking at her to see if her genes can be the key to developing a drug that will do the same for the rest of us. I don't have time to dive into all the wonderful twists and turns this story takes, but if you find yourself with 20 minutes spare, you won't regret spending it here. My last recommendation today is from Chip Cutter in the Wall Street Journal, and it's about what could, and perhaps what should, replace the layout of the open office. You've probably seen stories that explain why open offices are bad. They were supposed to increase collaboration and face-to-face connections with colleagues while reducing reliance on email. But instead, they reduce your concentration and even increase the amount of time you spend communicating digitally with your workmates. But if open offices can't improve our work lives, what can? Well, Cutter is here with the answer. He speaks to David Duane, an architect, about his radical idea for improving the workplace. His idea is that changing the way the space is structured can change the way people do their jobs. In his model, you would move between several distinct zones during the workday, each serving a separate purpose. These zones would help us alternate between deep work and chances to recharge, and culminate in individual chambers for solo concentrated work. If that sounds familiar, you might have read Cal Newport's book, Deep Work, which featured Duane's model as an example of a perfect work environment. For Newport, the holy grail of productivity is to create a space where people can home in on complex tasks for hours at a time with zero distractions. And Duane's model does just that. This would be a huge departure from the ubiquitous open office design, where the square feet devoted to each employee was squashed after the recession. But Duane is a big believer in the idea that work can be more fulfilling for both the employee and the employer, if only the space allowed that to be so. Some business owners have caught on and are redesigning their offices with this model in mind. The next step? Seeing if it really works. If it does, it could be the key to giving us back what we lost when offices lost their walls. Check out the full five-minute piece in the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining me for this week's Top Stories. Check out the show notes for the links to the articles. And if you want to read more, you can go to blendle.com and subscribe to the Daily Digest newsletter, which we send out at 8am Eastern. If you want to get in touch with your thoughts on the show, you can email me at editorial at blendle.com and you can follow us on Twitter at Blendle. I'm away next week, but I'll be back the week after with more recommendations. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. <laughs>